0: Hey, everyone, welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host,
1: Kevin Tofel.
0: And today we have a jam-packed show for you. We are going to talk about an automated factory in Arkansas, energy harvesting tech, details on HomeKit, some Google Home Preview stuff, and... A review of a new device I purchased.
1: Is it the SMALT?
0: It is not the SMALT. But is it the oh, smepper Not the smepper, <laughs> <laughs> But first, before we do anything, we must cover the most important moment of the show, which is last week we talked about Wink being purchased by Will I Am. And I said Will I Am after much struggle was a member of Outcast. And I was wrong. <makes noise> Which everyone was very quick to point out, which I am I love that your dedication to Will I am mm. is so strong. Um, it's a good
1: thing that wasn't the Daily Double on today's show,
0: exactly. So will I am is actually he was a member of the Black-eyed Peas, which is mm-hmm. why Fergie kept coming into my mind.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I feel better about that. But moving along to this week's coverage, we have no updates on Will I am and Wink. Unfortunately. I am waiting for that. But hey, We're going to move on to this week's sponsor, who is Heiko Solutions, and a preview of our guest, Michael Spears, who is the head of infrastructure cybersecurity at Honeywell. And he is going to be really fascinating, you guys. We're talking about how to secure physical plants. They have totally different threat landscapes, but some of the things they do, the rest of the world probably could learn from as well. So stay tuned for that. And now a message from another one of our sponsors. This week's sponsor is Eero. And let me tell you guys, Eero, these are wireless mesh routers. They are brand new second generation Eero routers out there. And I can tell you that I have them currently installed in my house. And They are faster than my old Eero routers that I had installed in my house for the last year and a half. So these contain one major Eero, a square that looks like kind of the other Eeros, and then it has beacons. These are mesh access points. They're not Wi-Fi extenders, but these mesh access points are smaller. You can plug them in and they also act as a nightlight. And the cool thing is these are backwards compatible with your old Eero. So you can upgrade your Eeros by buying a couple new beacons if you want for $149. Or if you don't have a mesh Wi-Fi system yet, you can buy the Eero in its original three-pack configuration of one major Eero and two beacons for $399. Yay! So... (laughs) If you want to buy these Eero routers, you should go to the Eero E-E-R-O.com. And when you buy it, you should put the code Stacy S T A C E Y in and you'll get free shipping. You'll also tell Eero that you listen to the podcast and we'll keep getting advertisers. Yay! Okay, so now, on to the show. Let's talk about Adidas, shall we?
1: We shall, we shall.
0: This, I thought, was a wicked cool story, and I can't believe no one else is talking about this. So in Little Rock, Arkansas, there is a Chinese company,
1: Tianwan Garments Company of Suzhou.
0: Yes. So they signed an agreement with Software Automation of Atlanta. They do have a partnership with the Georgia Tech Advanced Technology Development Center. And all of this means that Tianwan is going to be producing shirts for Adidas in a fully automated factory. And by fully automated, basically this thing uses cameras to map the fabric. It's using robots to steer the fabric through the sewing needles. And they're going to make t-shirts for Adidas.
1: A whole lot of t-shirts for Adidas because the numbers are mind-blowing to me. I mean, I'm not familiar with industrial production of such things. But when I saw how many t-shirts they can produce, I was blown away.
0: Me too. I don't know how they're going to sell all these. So they will produce 800,000 t-shirts a day for Adidas in this factory on 21 production lines. And the crazy part is that the personnel cost for each t-shirt is roughly 33 cents. That is like the cheapest labor one can find.
1: Which is good and bad. Yes, I I think. Right. Because on the good side, it's certainly good for Adidas because it certainly lowers their costs, uh, which they could pass on to consumers or they can just take in more profits, etc. But if you're a worker in this industry, it's probably a bad thing.
0: Yeah. So this is going to bring 400 new jobs to Arkansas. But if you imagine 400 jobs producing 800,000 T-shirts a day.
1: Yeah. One every 22 seconds.
0: (laughs) That is a huge productivity bump that is not being handled by people. So then the question is, well, what do people do? And that is a big question that we're trying to figure out across all industries. I personally think it frees people up to do more creative and fun things. Like podcasts. Like podcasts. There'll be a million more podcasts. But it also thinks, you know, (laughs) think about designing and... Mm -hmm where new costs might come from. And I guess the lower, I don't know, the lower cost of t-shirts.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely positive aspects of it. Um, and this is really, I think, tip of the iceberg. It's not like this is the first production line that is fully automated, obviously, but it's a very tangible example of what's going on in manufacturing around the world. And it's inevitable, unfortunately.
0: What is disturbing is it feels like this manufacturer, the automated manufacturing, a lot of Chinese companies are investing in this. Mm -hmm. And I would like to, with much manufacturing is already happening in China, but Foxconn is investing in fully automated, I believe, iPhone plants. So Foxconn already has 40,000 robots on its production lines. Foxconn is Apple's main iPhone assembler. And basically it is replaced more than half of its workforce with robots since the launch of the iPhone six. That is a lot. And they have mm-hmm. 10 lights out, which are fully automated production lines at some of their factories. And the whole idea is entire factories, not just production lines operate automatically. This is a crazy, this actually, it's not crazy. This is a big deal because if the future of automation and manufacturing is robots, China is really pushing hard and mm-hmm. leaving ahead here. And that means we can have manufacturing anywhere because we've got it'll be automated and we'll be looking for things, you know, setting up these industrial clusters so you don't have to ship things as far it's it's a really interesting kind of both manufacturing and then distribution kind of vision
2: mm-hmm.
0: but I am concerned that we're in the us are not at the forefront and
1: yeah <sighs> it's funny that you mentioned uh, Foxconn and Apple only because When you crack your iPhone screen and take it in to get repaired at an Apple store or some third party, such as Best Buy, it's not a person who repairs it anymore. It isn't. It is not. And that is why when you go there, and I've had a couple of the kids have cracked their screens, it's almost always should be done in an hour. And they know it's an hour because not because there's a person sitting there saying it's going to take me an hour to do this. Apple has created automated machines that do it for them
0: it makes sense. It's a common mm-hmm. problem.
1: <laughs> it is. It is.
0: Okay. Yikes. All right. Yikes, cool. I don't know. <laughs> so, we'll move right away from that topic because there's not a lot we can add here. It's it's something that I'm constantly thinking about and reading about, but I have no great mm-hmm. conclusions like many others. So, let's talk about energy harvesting tech because this was really cool. I am a big fan of energy harvesting. And I've been caring about this for so long, because I have so many devices that have batteries in my home. But I'm also thinking about things like, hey, if we put a bunch of sensors on bridges, or sensors under parking spaces, or those kind of things, how do we change the batteries in this? It's, it's not possible today. So that's why anything that harvests its own energy is really cool.
1: I mean we have to look at this I think because battery technology really has not drastically changed over the past decades, quite honestly. So and we have more mobile devices, they all have batteries of course. Uh, so how do we recharge them? How do we get energy back into them quicker without using the traditional plug it in method? So this is I think very big.
0: So this article, and I'll link to it in the story is from CNN. Engineering news, not CNN, but C and EN. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Worth noticing. And they covered some things I knew. So the main forms of energy harvesting are solar, so solar powered things. There's Pisio, which takes e- like motion energy um, mm-hmm. and converts it into energy. There's also temperature differentials can be used as well in certain sensors. And this article talked about something I hadn't dealt with before. It's a rare earth magnet that moves on springs alongside a wire coil and generates electricity. It produces between 50 and 90 milliwatts of power. That's milliwatts, you guys. Not a lot, right? Not much. But that's enough to energy, like to power a temperature sensor, a MEMS device, like a MEMS accelerometer, and a wireless transmitter. So this is from a company called Perpetuum. I do like its name. This could work under, they, they've built a rail system. So it goes under passenger or freight cars and rails and it grabs information, sends it to a gateway, and then it goes to the cloud. After the cloud, rail workers can act on any of the data like, Oh, it's a little extra bumpy here. I could see something like this working for detecting potholes in a city using like a LoRa radio, maybe. Mm-hmm which we've talked about on this show before. So I thought the magnets kind of thing was cool. But basically, I just wanted to draw y'all's attention to this because I don't think we talk about it enough. I don't think there's a lot of research happening here that's like, yeah. I mean, I talked to N-Ocean, which is the big name in this field, and they've been around for 17 years and they do great things, but I'm kind of like, what else is there?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a field that I think is ripe for further exploration, probably further investment. We need to rethink how we power things, because the things themselves have gotten so small and don't use as much energy. But to have a requirement for a hardwired power source or a battery, you know, I mean, the batteries are larger than the sensors at this point.
0: And we should also note that there is, when I talk to people in like the industrial world about Sensing and battery powered sensors, they talk about it being a psychological choice. And I was like, what are you talking about? There's a psychology hmm. element here. And basically what they're talking about is this idea in the IT world, we want to know everything that's happening all the time right now. And in some of the industrial world, they're like, Hey, how often really do I need the data from this? And it's, it's a very simple fact that if you have your item only update, you know, three times a day, that uses less power than, you know, waking up every 20 seconds to send an update. Mm -hmm. And these guys actually think about that as part of their design of their overall systems. And they're from a worldview, which is very power constrained and very sensitive to this sort of thing. So I thought that was kind of an interesting way to think about how often do I need my water sensor if it's not reporting a leak to wake up? Well... Mm -hmm you know, maybe once a day just to tell me the temperature is fine. And then when something goes wrong, it can be like, ah, something's wrong. So that's really all I have to say about this. I recommend you check out the article. And, you know, if you guys have some great ideas or cool energy harvesting tech, God, send it to me. I am like really, really want to nerd out deeply on this. So moving right along to slightly less nerdy topics. I don't know. Is this nerdy? Let's talk about home. Eh,
1: It's still nerdy, but in a good way.
0: It's more accessible because it's Apple, by golly. So I have been the biggest doubter of HomeKit. I really have. Next to me. Next to Kevin. <laughs> All right, Kevin and I are in a fight to see who doubts HomeKit more.
1: We might have less doubts now, I think.
0: Fewer doubts. I'm going to have fewer doubts. You can have less doubts. And the grammarians listening to the show can let us know who's right. <laughs> so back at WWDC in May, Apple said very cryptically that it was going to make HomeKit available to a wider number of partners. And I had Adam Justice on the show then, and he pointed that out to me. And we both said, man, what does that mean? And he's like, I don't know. And then we saw the release of a couple products, like Ikea's Trodfi lamps and Mm -hmm. Ring actually announced that it would work with Apple HomeKit. In the future? In the future. And we were like, Mm -hmm. but historically... Apple has required you to have a certification chip. It's all part of its security. And so right. that's why you got all these like, Oh, I work with HomeKit, but now you got to buy a new hub, which kind of sucked if you were a consumer, which is why I did not like it. But now it looks, it looks like people are actually implementing the, I guess, certification chip less version of HomeKit. Mm-hmm. And that's exciting. And then there's one other piece of this that seemed kind of exciting, that The Verge, they had a column from the Internet of, I can't say it on this show and keep my PG rating, so the Internet of <laughs> of poo. Uh, <laughs> I feel silly. But he also brought up the point, or she, no one knows. No one knows. That HomeKit, with the HomePod in December, could make it accessible to Android and Apple Homes, the mixed homes, as it were. And I was like, oh.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that would be a smart move if that's the case. I mean, we've already seen one major Apple service be compatible with Android, and that was Apple Music. That's actually one of the reasons I think that Apple Music subscriptions are going up because there's a wider group of potential customers there. And partly that's because Apple Music is really came from Beats Music, which was already Android compatible. So that just made sense to continue it. But, yeah, I mean, if you could get the HomePod working with Android, mm-hmm, again, you've broadened your potential audience. It's smart.
0: Well, and I look at this from a business perspective Apple has historically made everything work with their phone. Their phone was the flagship of the business of that line. We can talk about computers later. But from a mobile kind of operating system, the phone was it, and that was the computer for everything. What Mm -hmm. this signals possibly is a realization that you can still own the consumer without owning the home and still provide a viable ecosystem, and I don't know how Apple's going to make money off of this with HomeKit. I don't know if you have to pay. I mean, you have to pay an MFI fee for the certification chip. So you have to be an MFI certified mm-hmm. developer, builder, chip maker, et cetera. But I like this because Apple has come a long way with the design of home. There's still some things I don't like about it, but it is user-friendly and and this is where things get a little weird and the developers are kind of like, Apple, what you doing? And Apple's like, I'm thinking of the user. So you could actually set up a device using HomeKit and use it only in the home app. You don't have to actually set up the app for the device.
1: Right. You can, so you're reducing the number of apps required to manage your device is number one. Um, uh, it's a simpler sign up and and, uh, pairing type of process. I mean, frankly, with my ecobee, it just showed up in the home app. That's it. I mean, it was there.
0: Hello. Now, the developers, on the other hand, are doing everything they can to play as much as they can with Apple, but also get you to download the app. So they have your information, your email. So someone like a lock company, for example, might make you calibrate the lock in their own app. Whereas after that point, you can move to, you know, the Apple home Mm -hmm. kind of experience. So this is producing a lot of tension. So we'll see what happens there. As part of this, I'll just tell you that there is a brand new HomeKit enabled color light bulb from Sylvania. Big name brand, big colorful light bulb. It is $45, no hub, so if you're like looking at the mm. Hue lights and you're like, oh, that Zigbee hub, I don't love it. This is a Sylvania, 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 Sylvania. <laughs> like I'm just going to butcher the name. Um, it's an A19 full color light bulb and it works using Bluetooth. Hmm. Yeah. Bluetooth hmm. and Apple HomeKit. Yeah. So friendly, friendly. You wouldn't Very want this nice. if you're an Android person. But if you're an Apple house, and eventually, after we test the HomePod, maybe we'll tell you what it's like to live in a mixed house and have these kind of devices. But this is good. And I imagine that eventually this will use Bluetooth mesh if it doesn't already.
1: Mm-hmm. It's uh, available for pre-order for $45. So it's not inexpensive, but it's not too bad either.
0: The Hue bulbs are 60 Well, actually, the, 18, the, big, the A19s and the BR30s. That's it. Yeah. Um, I feel like the A19s are cheaper now in the Hugh Land, but this, you don't have a hub. No hub. Nope. Okay. So I'll get a test version of that and I'll tell you how the lights work and you can look forward to that. They will not ship until September, just so you know. Okay. Moving on from the home kit news, let's move to the Google home news. Yeah. Kevin? Well, this
1: is interesting, and I will say right up front that I have not signed up for this yet, but there is a preview program if you have a Google Home. You may sign up for the preview program, and what will happen is, kind of like what they did with the Chromecast where they uh, sent you advanced features sooner for beta testing, essentially. Um, So you may get new firmware on your Google Home before everybody else, new features, and so on. I generally can't pass up a beta program. So once I put my Google Home back in my home office, which is undergoing a renovation right now, I will sign up for this. So I don't know what they might bring to us, which we will have to see, but you can sign up. Uh, Maybe we can include the link in the show notes.
0: We will. I will also sign up, even though my Google Home does not get the usage, it probably should. So while we're talking about voice control, Amazon Echo, it can now voice control TVs, Yay. Certain TVs. Certain certain TVs.
1: TVs. Yeah. And for me, my TV is not supported officially, but if you have an Amazon Fire TV box, which I do connected to my TV, you can Mm -hmm. then pair your Echo with the Fire TV box and uh, voice control the TV that way.
0: And in a speculative news story, Amazon Echoes may get multi-room audio.
1: I thought you would like that. I do.
0: I'm just going to get cranky for a moment where the heck is my Sonos where the mm-hmm. heck is my Sonos I have I've been buying Echoes and I don't want to buy the full Echoes because I'm like I have all these lovely Sonoses mm-hmm. in my room and oh god I am getting frustrated
1: okay. well if multi-room audio comes to Echo devices I don't know that there's a ton of incentive for Amazon to bring it to Sonos uh that's. I'm not saying that's what they do. I'm just saying I wouldn't be surprised if you never see
0: that. They promised. All right. I don't think I, they promised. They said they were going to do it. They did say they were going to. They did not technically promise. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> I actually reached out to Sonos about two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago now, and asked for an update. And they were like, we'll get that to you. And then no one ever got that to me. So Ooh. I'm going to have to reach out again, I guess. Mm -hmm. And moving on, because it it feels negative to complain all the time on the show, let's talk about, ooh, cool story before we get to our little review. Future of home building. I thought this was really interesting. This is from CE Pro. And basically, the idea is in Lennar's home, Lennar is a home builder, they have stopped putting low voltage wiring. This is the wiring for your speakers, for your doorbells, for all kinds of things, They've built the first Wi-Fi certified smart homes. And this is something the Wi-Fi Alliance had certified earlier this summer. Yeah, I remember
1: we talked about it and I was kind of scratching my head over it.
0: Yeah, we were like, what the heck? But what Mm -hmm. Lennar is doing is they're going to pull Cat 5 or 6 cable to Wi-Fi access points as well as the doorbell location. But they're not going to pull it to home office locations or entertainment centers. So (sighs) no speaker wire. Coax is only going to go to two TV locations in the majority of their new homes. This is a big freaking deal.
1: Yes, this is a big freaking deal because it means another step closer towards wireless, whether you want it or not.
0: And I don't want it. I'm going to say I built my home in 2012 and Mm -hmm. I put Cat 6, not Cat 5, because Cat 6 is gigabit proof and i was still hoping to get gigabit internet, but it's not happening. Anyway, side note there, a little bitterness. I tell people when they ask about future-proofing their home, to stick cable running to an Ethernet jack in every room of their
1: house. Every room. Yep. I would agree.
0: And I know people hate hubs, but by God, it feels – and maybe, you know, I'm thinking about my original Eros, actually. I had them – I wired them in, so they weren't actually technically a a full mesh (laughs) because they were wired into the LAN. Mm-hmm. Um, and just producing a wi- a unified Wi-Fi system. But with the beacons, there is, there is no Ethernet that is fully wireless. So maybe I'm right. just behind the times?
1: Well, I mean, the benefits of wired is it's pretty much guaranteed consistency, right? Whereas wireless networks will fluctuate based on signal strength and, and other things. So I agree with your concerns. On the flip side... I literally just bought a small 4K set, TV set, and I put it in our bedroom. It's wall mounted. And I'm using Wi-Fi to watch 4K TV on it, just like I do in the 4K set in my office. And we have a 1080p set downstairs. That one's actually hardwired, but everything else is wireless in my house because I don't have the jacks and the Cat6. With the right wireless network, you know, it can work. I mean, it's working for me, is what I should say, multiple 4K streams and so on. So I guess even though I'm concerned, I almost sound hypocritical here because it is
0: working for me, all wireless. That's the question. Are we ready for this? And maybe we are. I think about, you know, Eero, which is managing your connectivity, you know, managing your signal strength and doing Mm -hmm. all of that
1: prioritizing and yeah,
0: do it. optimizing. it all yeah. of that for you. Um, and then there's services like Plume that do similar things, but only in the cloud, and Comcast mm-hmm. is betting big on that. Samsung actually has a deal with Plume. So it's possible.
1: I that- mean, we're to the point now where wireless speeds from routers and such are far faster than the pipe or the broadband, the wired broadband that people get to the houses to begin with. So maybe, maybe it is time.
0: Maybe it certainly lowers the cost of building a house. And if you're a home builder, you yes. know, I mean, low voltage is copper. It's copper wiring. So if you can yeah. stop wiring things to speakers, that's that's very economical. Mm-hmm. I don't know, y'all. Uh, mm. so I'm sure
1: so, listeners have some thoughts. I'd be curious to hear what they think.
0: Yeah, send us your thoughts. Send us your thoughts. I should say, because I got a question. I actually got two questions about this. So quick note. I always tell people how much I like NetAtmos stuff. And then I got an email from a frustrated user because NetAtmo went down this weekend Mm. and they did a terrible job communicating to their customers about what happened. So I heard back from NetAtmo. They said the issues has been solved. Both issues have been solved. They had two issues. One is people could not install their NetAtmo cameras. So please try again if you couldn't install it. And two, notifications were delayed and the camera missed events. And that issue has also been solved. They didn't Mm. explain what happened. But hopefully, if you had a Netatmo camera that wasn't working this weekend, try everything again, restart it, and see what happens. If it still doesn't work, let me know. And I will come back to them and be like, all right, guys, we got to talk. So (laughs) that's the update there. And then finally, a tiny little review. It's a tiny little review of a tiny little device that I was so excited (laughs) to have. Okay. You guys probably remember that I wanted a standalone Spotify player to take on walks with my dog. Mm -hmm. And I bought the Mighty. It's the Mighty player. And this is the BeMighty.com is the website. This was a $95. It looks like an iPod. Shuffled. Yes. The tiny little one that you can't control. Mm -hmm. Right. It works so well. So... They promised me five hours of battery life. I have pushed it to four and a half. And then I was like, no, if I don't charge now, I won't have access to my music tomorrow morning on the walk. The full back is a clip. So it's a, like, it's a probably one and a half inch by one and a half inch. I'm not looking directly at the specs device, but the whole back is the clip. So it's not like there's a smaller clip. So it's a little awkward sometimes to put on my, my outfit when I'm going out to walk the dog. It works with both Bluetooth headphones and wired headphones. So yay. And it actually has made me want to get wired or wireless headphones now. And it, it's user interface is really simple. It does take kind of a long time to move a play move your playlists over.
1: Right. Right.
0: It moves your playlist over via wifi, your home wifi. And that's, I'm assuming where it's also doing the DRM with Spotify. Mm -hmm. and checking in, but it also will do things like there's an option to, or it's a coming option. I didn't see it yet on my thing to like keep it fresh, which means some of their playlists that you might have, they update pretty Mm -hmm. regularly and that'll automatically update it when it's on your wifi network in the house. I love this thing. It works exactly like I thought it was going to work. That's cool. I've had it for three weeks and by God, I love it.
1: I suspect that you have to sync that to Spotify once at least every month or so.
0: Possibly. I I haven't done that yet.
1: And and the reason I say that is because, gosh, this is going way back. I think the Microsoft Zune would do that. You could download stuff from, you know, your music apps from Microsoft as long as you had your subscription paid the zune pass i think it was called it was 10 bucks a month or something but you had to sort of check in from a DRM perspective at least once every 30 days or it would not just cease working for you and that was just to make sure you're paying your subscription which in spotify is a subscription service so it makes sense
0: right this does only work if you pay for the spotify premium right so if this need is something you guys have I, i really recommend this product it's great so It's not really IoT, but who cares? But it's still connected. All right. (laughs) That's about it for us this week. We shall take a moment for a message from our sponsor. And after that, we will have Mike Spear from Honeywell talking about cybersecurity and how they think about it on the industrial IoT side and the plant side, which is very different from how we think about it in, I don't know, the IT world or even the home world. But you can learn from it. Yes, you can. All right. Stay tuned for that. And now, a message from our sponsor. Hey, everyone, we are breaking into the Internet of Things podcast with a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Heiko Solutions, and we have Marcus Krause here from Heiko. Hey, Marcus, how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing great, Stacey. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Excellent. Glad you're here. So remind us all again what it is that Heiko Solutions does.
2: We are an advanced IoT engineering solutions provider with development centers based in Eastern Europe. We help primarily U.S.-based clients by providing engineering teams that include a number of skills, allowing us to help our partners design and build end-to-end custom IoT solutions.
0: All right. So you mentioned that you guys combine a number of skills to build these teams. Can you talk about those?
2: We really combine skill in what we describe as three core areas. Uh, Number one, embedded firmware and electrical engineering. So think PCB design, electronic component selection, um, advanced knowledge of the different wireless protocols, whether they're more standard or Zigbee, Z-Wave, LoRa, amongst many others. Number two, mathematical data processing. Here we have a team of PhDs focused in discrete mathematics, computational geometry, statistical analysis, really work on building custom algorithmic solutions using advanced machine learning techniques. And then number three, digital experiencers or software engineering. We employ several hundred software engineers, most of which have an educational background in mathematics and work in a plethora of different programming languages. For both mobile and web applications. By end-to-end solutions, what we really mean is that we combine all of these skills to build teams that help our clients with everything from designing the electronic components within a connected device, using mathematicians to drive value out of the data that's coming from the sensors within those devices, and software engineering teams to build interfaces for those applications.
0: I like it. So what does a typical client look like?
2: Our clients come in all shapes and sizes. We're we're fairly industry agnostic, but we work with funded startups to the Fortune 50. What they generally have in common is that they're looking for highly advanced engineering skill that is both difficult and expensive to source locally. They're generally looking for a partner who can ramp up teams within a few weeks at a very reasonable cost. I believe they find the combination of skills and the number of things they can accomplish with one partner hard to find anywhere else.
0: Excellent. So where can we get more information?
2: Go to our website. You can get white papers, case studies, uh, technology roadmaps, project descriptions, all available at www.hyco-solutions.com. H-I-Q-O-solutions.com.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Marcus.
2: Thank you, Stacy. Mm-hmm.
0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham. And today's guest is Mike Spear, who is a global operations manager for industrial cybersecurity at Honeywell. Hi, Mike. How are you doing today? Hi, Stacey. Doing well. Thanks. Man, I am super excited to have you on the show because I went to this Huddywell user group meeting and I saw you speak about cybersecurity and securing manufacturing plants. And I was kind of blown away. I was like, wow, they have a totally different threat landscape. And they're thinking about it in kind of a way that maybe IT organizations should also start thinking about it or other businesses who are dealing with IoT. So let's kick it off with what you're in charge of securing what you do at Honeywell. Okay, well, I'm
3: responsible for the on-site delivery of cyber solutions for the industrial market. The industrial market, as defined uh, by us, is the oil and gas, uh, refining, petrochemical, paper, uh, the process industries, as we say. And we try to help, as as you mentioned, the operations technology, as it's often referred to, or the OT environment, uh, secure their systems, balancing the need of production, which is. Uh, their paramount importance and safety uh, with that of uh, security tolerances. So uh, I lead the team uh, around the globe that uh, go to the sites and uh, meet with the customers, understand their risk tolerance, their risk appetites. And then we come up with the solutions that help them uh, mitigate the levels of risk that they uh, feel that they need to uh, mitigate.
0: Okay. We're going to talk about that. But good. first, you're like, good, that's why I signed up to come on the show. But first, <laughs> we're going to talk about process manufacturing versus discrete manufacturing, because it's possibly worth it to like break this up, because not all manufacturing <laughs> is the same. Can you explain Absolutely. the difference?
3: For me, process industries is is I take something on the input side, and I turn it into something else on the output side. So I take uh, uh, wood chips in, and I make paper. I take oil in, and I make gas. I take chemicals in, and I make uh, uh, pills, Uh, whereas discrete manufacturing for me is more of I'm assembling stuff. I'm putting a car together. I'm making an iPhone. So the process industries are, are again, more processing raw input into a usable, uh, slightly different output.
0: Okay. And the process industry has had sensors for a long time. This is not new to start throwing sensors in and measuring all of this stuff, whereas in other industries, it might be. So what has actually changed with, quote unquote, the Internet of Things?
3: Well, I think the Internet of Things is a whole new future direction for the process industries. Again, up until we would say in the short history, the process industries were, were a very proprietary environment, meaning the, the communication between the sensors all the way up to the controls was a proprietary bus. Recently, and in the last 10 years or so, cost and other factors and, and, and the need for additional information has driven the industry to what they call the open architecture, and therein lies the openness of the structure. So, so now everything, once we brought the Ethernet cables, shall we say, to the plant for that opens up the capabilities and the flexibilities to do more, get more information, to optimize, to improve the security and safety of the overall uh, environment. With that also becomes the need then more to get more of that information up to the business level so that businesses can make real-time decisions based directly down to what's going on at the process level, at the sensor level, shall we say.
0: All right. And so you guys have been starting to combine the old school proprietary communications that ran in factories for a while, with now, new school IT kind of Ethernet based stuff. We're gonna use a specific word like stuff. Let's talk about how you thought about security when you started this and what you're thinking about security now. So how that perspective has changed
3: all dramatically changed. Again, in the beginning with a proprietary system, uh, uh, the communication protocols, the access within the environment was limited to those who understood the protocol. Uh, Now, with an open protocol or an open system, as we say, more, quote, unquote, centric, now it's the same common language that the entire world uses, whether it's your bank or your financial systems, your your Walmarts or, or your gas station. All that technology is very similar now. Most businesses, people have been dealing with this for for 20 years. You know, it's just now recently that that same technology has become invaded into the plant floor. Now, albeit it's not a direct one to one you you can't do a lot of the things at the plant level that you could for example on your business side one of the things that we use as an example for example uh if your it group wants you to reboot your workstation that's a pretty non-invasive uh activity whereas at a at a plant floor automatically rebooting a system can have very catastrophic consequences. So it has to be done with care. Same with uh, communication protocols and the interruptions of, uh, of communication at the plant level. It can be much more, um, from a safety standpoint, severe impacts than it would if you lose, for example, your email. So big, big change at the at the plant level.
0: Okay, so now that you've brought this in, how do you educate people? people in the IT security world? And then how do you educate your existing security or even personnel on the floor, how to behave? Because that, that feels like your workers are probably really well trained when it comes to safety issues, like, hey, that's a vat of hydrochloric acid, you probably shouldn't touch that. And maybe you should wear a certain gear around it. But when it comes to the IT world, maybe they don't get the same things like, hey, you should not send your bank account over email. Hopefully everyone knows that. But just in case. You'd be surprised, actually.
3: But absolutely. I I think by definition, there there are different resources or or the people running the plants are a different mindset. Uh, Most are process focused, chemical engineers. Again, they're interested in in making whatever it is they're making. They're not focused so much on, on their IT side because that's not something they deal with. Again, they're very leery of having the IT their IT group actually come in and do stuff at the plant level, and, and I'd say that's one of the biggest things I think in in the talk. I, I kind of gave that example of uh, anybody in a plant if they saw a, a rickety old ladder leaned against the a wall and somebody climbing up it with a big 50-pound uh, bag would say, hey, call OSHA, that's a safety hazard. But if they were walking in the parking lot and, and said the CEO salary on a USB stick, uh, nine out of nine would go in and plug it into their computer. They don't have that same level of uh, uh, diligence or governance uh, at the plant level around these type of security programs. And that's one of the messages we're trying to get out there. It's more than just putting in a firewall or or segmenting a network. It's the people process technologies. People are your biggest, one of your biggest uh, risk factors, right? and so this whole awareness of educating the plant people on what to look for and what to do, and so that when events do happen, they know exactly the right reaction they should take to an event that may potentially cause severe damage to to the plant and the production, and by and in extreme circumstances, safety.
0: So how do you train people and what are the things you're trying to train your workers on when it comes to IT security?
3: There's two different training aspects to that. When you refer to workers, my team are very specialized people. They are typically, uh, as this is very new in this space, there's not a lot of people with 20 years' experience in, in doing industrial IT. Uh, so we typically recruit from out of the industry and get the senior, let's call them IT experts. We bring them into our organization and, and we detune them. And it takes somewhere between three to six and sometimes nine months to detune them. And by detuning them, I mean taking all that technology experience and knowledge and certifications that you had in the IT world and modify them to apply them to the industrial world. And it's only after they've gained the whole um, knowledge of, of all those things do we actually let them go out and actually serve as our customers. On the other side, for our customers – we're offering a variety of, uh, we start with awareness training. Again, it goes through the whole concept of, you know, what should you do when? What should you look for? What are some of the basics around cyber you should be thinking about when you're d- designing, implementing, or purchasing a, a new control system? Uh, all the way up to some of our more mature customers. You know, I want to put in a SIM. What does that look like? Let us train you on the advantages of a SIM, let's say, versus, uh, you know another security control it It ranges the whole gamut on the let's call it customer side,
0: okay. What are the biggest things you have to your i t folks on, or what are what are the things that they need the most help with?
3: it's a lot of stuff i mean i don't want to get through technical on vlaning and some of the, the technical things that you can do in a it environment you just cannot do in a process environment due to the responsiveness that's required loss of view in a control system for a minute is a big deal <laughs> you know whereas if your screen at your laptop goes out for a minute it's you know it's not the end of the world uh, in a plant it could cause catastrophic 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 results so it's really training them around that it's also training them walking into a plant i mean you go into some very um, hazardous areas you know how do you operate in these hazardous areas think about it if i plug the cable in the wrong place and create a control loop you know the impact of a of a refinery doing that versus a Uh, let's say uh, a 7-Eleven is significantly different, you know?
0: Oh, okay. That's kind of awesome. And let's talk about risk mitigation because a couple people I talked to at this Honeywell event, you know, I was asking them various security questions and they were like, well, really, Stacey, this is a psychological issue. It's basically how secure do you really feel like you need to be? And once you get past that, then you can set your parameters. And I'm like, wait, that's even an option? to think about how secure you need to be? That's crazy. I just want to be secure. So help me with the, the industrial security mindset in terms of figuring out how to think about risk.
3: Risk is, is two aspects, right? So you've got risk tolerance, which is you know, how much can the business actually tolerate? And then risk appetite, which is how much can you really afford to do? Put it in comparison to your house. You can lock your front door. That may be a good risk. You can put bars on your windows. You can put an alarm system in. If you're trying to mitigate the risk against an assassin trying to shoot you, they may be good things, but you may want to wear Kevlar vest. There's all these different levels depending on what it is you're trying to protect yourself against. And only the business, meaning the customer, can answer that question, uh, my version of protection may be different than your version of protection, so it is somewhat a psychological, shall we say, but but more in terms of appetite versus what can the business take? Can you afford to have this process lined down for six weeks? that type of and you have to do these type of uh, mitigation uh, evaluations or risk calculations to determine what level of security that you need to implement in your system. Now, the IEC 62443, which is kind of the guidelines for control systems, you know, it lays it out in terms of who are you trying to protect yourself against. Are you trying to protect yourself against Stacy, who may come in and accidentally plug her laptop into the control system and her her husband was playing uh, Star Wars or some game on the I uh, dated myself there, with, uh, with their laptop and infects the system? Or are you trying to protect yourself against Snowden or somebody that's, you know, trying to do harm from within the walls? Or are you trying to protect yourself from a nation state? Each of these, once you determine what you're trying to protect yourself against, then there's a set of mitigating controls that you can implement to address that. Uh, one of the interesting things that we try to tell everybody, because they get hung up in this whole conversation around, uh, you know, do I bake a bowl the world or do I just, you know, take a drink? 38 uh, percent, what we found, 38, 35 of the attacks or or issues that we find or we're called involved in originate within the four walls of the plant. Now, what does that mean? That means that it's either uh, an innocent employee doing something, a vendor coming in doing something, which, by the way, in these plants, vendors are in there every day in these control systems. They need access to the control system to do updates, to do repairs, things like that, or a disgruntled employee. So there's a set of controls and procedures and, and governance around protecting yourself at that level. Some parts of the world and and our customers that we deal with are really targeted by nation states. So therefore, we have to do a significantly more protective type of mitigation strategy for those. So it's not a one size fit all.
0: Speaking of nation states, there's a lot of attention right now to hacks by nation states and different types of attacks, maybe using tools from the NSA, perhaps. So things like (laughs) WannaCry, NotPetya, Petya, all of that feels like everyone's more aware of this now. So how does that change the environment you guys operate in?
3: I think the positive from our side is, uh, you know, we've been we've been seeing this, as you mentioned, for years. But now that's brought it to a different level of awareness to where now we're seeing that the Plants and the people that are involved in this are now looking and saying, hey, wait a second. This is happening in the industrial space. This could happen to me. Uh, What are we doing? Uh, We get called in often uh, because uh, an executive has asked the plant, what are we doing? Are we protected against a want to cry? And the plant goes, I'm not sure. Well, that's the wrong answer, right? So the awareness level has increased dramatically, I would say, in the last 6 to 12 months. And by that, they're coming to companies like Honeywell, who have been doing this for a while, and saying, hey, where do we start? I think that's the biggest challenge for most of the people we talk to. I want cybersecurity. To your point earlier, do I want the $5,000 cybersecurity or the $5 million cybersecurity? Which do I need? They don't know where to start. And companies like Honeywell, we can come in and, and say, okay, let's talk about this. Look at your risk mitigation. What's your risk tolerance? What's your risk appetite? And then come up with a solution that that helps them get started. But the bottom line is the awareness has increased significantly, and that has helped everybody to actually put in the action to start getting their system secure
0: this is kind of an interesting idea. But let's say you've got a an oil refinery, and maybe it's it's a crucial oil refinery, uh, supplying, I don't know, part of the United States. And they pick a risk mitigation plan that feels maybe like, not enough. So what is your role as someone who consults with these guys in that case? And then where should the funding come from for all of this?
3: Our role is that of, let's say, as a a trusted advisor. I mean, we're going to tell them what we think is the right uh, mitigation strategy, and it will be based on the standards, on these market levels that we're seeing with other customers, so it kind of gives them a point of reference. We see the funding coming from a couple different sources. Uh, Sometimes corporate funds it. Sometimes the actual plants are left to fund it because at the end, it, the direct correlation is to production. So it's more of a protection cost on, on production. They fund it out of OPEX at times. Uh, other times, depending on what it is they're doing, they may have to come out of CAPEX. So it's multiple sources on, on the funding side, if okay. that was your question. Yeah.
0: yeah, no, that that is. And, and part of me wonders... If you have a process that maybe doesn't feel essential, but could be polluting or something, if it were breached, and then have a severe detrimental effect, and nuclear power is kind of something everyone's worried about, right? But it could even be, you know, a paper mill, killing a river, I don't know, then it, it may not become a financial priority for the plant operators. And that feels like a question we should all be thinking about as we put more things online.
3: Absolutely. And you and you see around the globe, many countries now are passing regulatory issues that if you have a cyber attack in a critical infrastructure that impacts the economy or whatever, then the plants are being liable. So you, we're seeing a growing increase around the globe of, of regulatory uh, compliance type of uh, requirements, shall we say. Uh, And I think you're going to see that increase, increase, to your point. Uh, That makes it uh, skin in the game, shall we say.
0: Where do you see these regulations happening fastest or where do you look and you are like, hey, these guys are actually building a really good model for regulating this sort of thing?
3: By far, the the leaders are are some of the countries in the Middle East. Again, they're in a different, uh, you know, shall we say, environment than maybe, you know, some, some of the other parts of the world. I know uh, France and Europe—they're uh, also uh, coming on board pretty rapidly. Uh, I mean, the U.S. is, is doing some things, NERC SIP on the power side. Canada has passed or uh, pushing some of their loud Alberta compliance NERC SIP type. So it's it's around the globe. But but if you had to say, you know, who was the the ones that kind of are in front, I, w- I would have to say the Middle East. Yeah.
0: All right. And words of wisdom for people in the IT side who are looking at the plant as a source of revenue and saying, wow, we should just get in there. These guys are so old school (laughs) and we could make this awesome for them. What would you say to those guys as they
3: look before you leap? Again, as I mentioned earlier in the discussion, the technologies are the same. The applications are significantly different and the consequences are significantly different. So um, part of what we bring to the party is, is we bring both the IT knowledge and what we call the process knowledge. And the two combined is what you need to actually work in this thing called the OT environment
0: whoop whoop. All right. <laughs> Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show this week.
3: Oh, you're welcome.
0: That's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want more IOT news, you can sign up for my newsletter, Stacy Knows Things at stacyoniot.com. on IOT.com. We'll see you next week.